0: Well, congratulations! You've made it through the retreat. Congratulations, Kitty Sara. <laughs> <laughs> and Tanisara. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a bit of a workout, hey? Mm. So we now have the. The uh, finishing, the leaving, the finishing, the going back to or going forward into uh, whatever comes next for each of us. Uh, Have the image of a, it's like we've had a a flower, a seed of the retreat, the beginning of the retreats, and then a little flower. A flower that's emerged and the petals of the flower, each one of us being blown, hopefully not too blown, into <laughs> difficult ways by the winds of karma, but gently the winds of karma bring change and we go in our different directions. And uh, may we all go as well as we can. Uh, leaving a retreat is a practice as well. And sometimes it's um, easy to, to underestimate the quality of gatheredness. Although we've sat here and maybe we felt all over the place the whole retreat and maybe had one mindful breath, you know, what, or we, maybe we, we feel like it's been a really successful, focused, deep, profound retreat. Uh, how, however, it has been, you know, this is the moment when we let that just be. You know, we, we move into the next moments, fresh, the next piece that's arriving. But there is, however we've been with the retreat, there is a certain quality of gatheredness that has happened for us individually, collectively, and it's almost like a, a somewhat altered state of consciousness. It's not the usual everyday consciousness, and so often when we go out, you know, we're all going to be getting in our transport and going to the airports and whatever. It can be energetically a little bit ragged. It can feel a little bit bumpy. So, you know, as Ajahn Chah would encourage the circumstance changes but the practice remains. The, the arising and passing of conditions happen but the awareness remains. And so if we move into whatever is happening for us as the day unfolds, as the, the coming week unfolds, and particularly we're going into the holiday season, which it just, you know, everything just gets very heightened around that time <laughs> in terms of, for many people, stress, pressure, a billion things to finish off before we try and unhook for the holidays. Um, to to remember that you know that it's uh, that that in this transition to to try and undertake it as as carefully as we can so that that bumpy energetic sort of experience is as as held as possible and doing that is one way of doing that is just being able to really let this you know just let the impression of the retreat remain something will happens, has happened, something has impacted, or whether, you know, whether from our own process, insight, some of the teachings, whatever, has unfolded, just allow that to gently cook and marinate in our life. And in the letting go, actually, of the form, we're letting go now of the form of the retreat, it helps to, for the transition, if we hold too much onto the form and how it was or a memory, then actually we create the very conditioning for a sense of resistance to what's coming next. So the art in transitions like this is to, you know, to acknowledge the form, um, to to appreciate and to let go, (laughs) let it be and then to move, to move what we have to move into and with as least resistance as possible. So that we can be more fluid, the art of practice really is to to be fluid in life, to to be able to respond to what's needed rather than to respond from an idea of how it should be, how we should be as a meditator. Uh, you know, sometimes we need to respond, and move quickly, or respond with strength, or respond. Uh, and if we have we if we have an idea that we that we've that we've kind of we we've, we've become stuck in then it then it impedes our ability to to really be in tune with what's actually needed now you know mindfully slowly going through the airport queue <laughs> you know might not be a great thing for the 50 people stacked up behind us you know, so oh boy. so we you know we we got to we got to be flexible one has to move but to remember moving slowly moving quickly uh, d- difficult circumstances, lovely st- circumstances. The pra- when we get the principle of practice, that remains. We can reflect, how is it now? What's present now? Can I establish a moment of presence? When, when I first listened to Ajahn Chah, So when he first came to the UK. It was his first visit to the West. Uh, He had been in Thailand all his life, really. Uh, He had ordained when he was about 13, and then lived, uh, wandered as a young man, as a young monk. He wandered through the the forests, what were then forests. Of course, they've disappeared pretty much now. Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Burma, before communism, when the borders were more open and flexible, and um, he was, you know, he was living that that paradigm or that archetype of the of the warrior kind of tough monk, uh, going. his very tough life, um, and then eventually came back to the village where he was born in Ubon, northeast of Thailand, and was invited to start a monastery in a place that no one else wanted to go, which was an old cremation ground. People were frightened of ghosts and felt that it was haunted and Ajahn Chah thought, well that's a perfect place for a monastery (laughs) where no one else wants to go. (laughs) And established his monastery, a community grew up around him and uh, he talked about how actually his real practice began when he was in community, when he was challenged by living with people. You know, that's when the real wisdom started. Well, he had a practice, a real practice before, but the wisdom started to really grow and he was very compassionate, so I also, um, you know, the compassion that he had started to grow when he was dealing with people. And he was very available uh, for, for people would come and all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life and hang out with him under his huts. Um, the huts would be on stilts and he would sit under and people would come and he'd have time. And, but he'd never been to the West and one of his first visits to the West, he came to the UK the first time in 1977. And at the time I was doing a retreat outside of Oxford at a, a retreat centre. It was one of these very, very s- sort of strict... Um, it was a Go- Goenka retreat. Those of you who have done <laughs> the Goenka workouts, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> it's like sit and don't move. You know, it's, it, I, For me, it was really hard. And Ajahn Chah appeared at this retreat, and he came with his, one of his senior uh, Western disciples who became, who's now senior monk in the UK, Ajahn Smedo. And I, you know, never really seen a Buddhist monk before. And they walked in the room, and they looked like two spacemen. I, what are these? You know, these are really cool beings. One was really big and tall, and Cha was quite small and squat. And um, he, uh, he, the first thing he, he, there, there had been. This was a centre that was owned by some Burmese people, and they had. Put a. they had a, a Burmese Buddha, which was actually quite beautiful. We didn't really know what it was, so we just kind of picked it up by its throat and just shoved it in the corner, you know, a nice little kind of ornament. <laughs> we were interested in just in the meditation, and Ajahn Chah walked in, and he saw this little Buddha that had been abandoned in the corner, and he just went up and bowed. And I would never seen anyone bow before, and it was a very, it, for me, I had a very interesting reaction. I, I, I sort of felt intuitively that that was a really beautiful response to make in life. Just somehow just to bow into it. it, it without all the you know, overlay of religious stuff that we have, it just it spoke to me in a very direct way. and That evening he gave a talk. And it was translated, he couldn't speak English. And I was listening to the talk, and all the way through the talk, I kept thinking, wow, this is so good. This is, this is really good. You know, everything he was say, it was like really good. And then at the end of the talk, he said, well, if you've been sitting here thinking this is good or bad, you haven't been listening properly. <laughs> oh, it was really, really, really good. <laughs> I'm a slow learner. So, you know, it's it was it was helpful for that's a very profound this listening. You know, we've been talking about that on the retreat and as we go back into our daily life, it's it's listening beneath the surface of how our views and opinions tell us this is good, it shouldn't, it should be, it shouldn't be, shouldn't be busy, shouldn't be hectic, there shouldn't be irritation, there shouldn't be conflict. Um, It should all be, because I'm a meditator now, it should all be peaceful and smooth, and in fact, usually the opposite happens, you know, you're just basically opening up more, so there's going to be more coming in to, to challenge, so be prepared, you know, so, so this, this, what gets transported is not the form, or even, you know, necessarily the structures of the teachings, or even necessarily the methods that we can always replicate in any moment. But what can get really, what is really fluidly translated and what Ajahn Chah focused on in his teaching was this, what he called, and what is part of the, the, the first aspect of the, the Eightfold Noble Path is, is view or right view. And that is not holding a view as right, but being able to respond from a place of present moment mindfulness to the moment. You know, what's happening now? and then sensing into that, being aware, and allowing the response to emerge from a deeper, intuitive, wise, connected place. And, you know, that, that means we don't really know quite what's gonna happen or how we might respond, but we trust You know this first indriya that we've been cultivating. We trust, as we, as we deepen the practice, we get to trust more and more profoundly that dwelling and abiding in awareness practicing moments of mindfulness, the most appropriate response to whatever we meet will arise. And if it's not, we'll learn from it. (laughs) We'll know how to learn from that. So I wish you really well. Um, I would, just on a practical level, um, just if you can, it's not always possible. If you can, when you go back and get home, just try and pace yourself to give time for the, for the, you know, one might be able to move quickly in the mind, but the energetic process of transition, the body is a bit slower. So you don't kind of just go down and plug into 3,000 emails and, you know, 10 billion answer phone, fo- of calls on the answer phone and... You know, just if you can, it's not always possible. Just give yourself a bit of time to make the transition. You don't have to explain to everyone every detail of your retreat. You go home, people say, "How was it?" Generally, they want to know if you're still on the planet. They they, they don't necessarily want to know every detail of the painful knee and the insight. And you can just say, "It was fine," and they go, "Oh, that's great, you're back." And then you know, do you want a cup of tea, or I guess here a cup of coffee, and you know, life carries on, you know, and the dance carries on, and we just trust whatever insights, understandings, practice, that it ripens in its own time, and it's there to support us. So what I'd like to do now as we, you know, is to really just open up the field. I I I think it's Oh yeah, that's really <laughs> um, just in terms of actually leaving this space because we have three quarters of an hour, and then we there's the hour for the book thing, and then the lunch. Um, Kesar just reminded me, which 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 is I find very helpful, is that everyone will have their own relationship to emerging out of silence into contact and conversation. And for some people, it's like, can't, you know, like raring to go, can't wait to have a chat. And for other people, it's actually quite difficult. And it's, it's a little bit, it creates a lot of anxiety. It can be, you know, it can bring up um, a sense of awkwardness or not sure. Um, or, it can, or, or there can be a sense of, I actually, I'm not ready yet to sit down and explore my life story with my fellow retreatant. Mm-hmm. So if you find, you know, just to be sensitive around that and try and tune in to your rhythm. So if you find yourself talking to someone, you know, about, about your most profound insight and you find that you're looking at them and they look a bit pale and a bit sort of, you know, stuck to the wall, then, you know, just try and <laughs> give them some space, you know, and not, not feel that one has to... You get a response. So, so you know, just give, giving permission for each other to be to, to try, if we can, if someone wants to eat more quietly, so just being sensitive in that way to the needs of each other as we emerge into silence, conversation, contact, you know, do, doing the best we can around that. To try, you know, often at the end of a retreat, it's a bit like this energetic explosion, and it's like... Yeah, So it's just just always trying to find a way for that to be just a little more gentle. Some of you nod, you know what I mean. (laughs) Okay, so um, before we sort of talk, and I I am aware that the question came up about engaged Buddhism or stuff like that, Um, before we go into to more general questions, topics. It would be nice just to get a sense of any response or feedback or how you found the retreat or anything that you would like to ask about um, that perhaps wasn't so clear while we're still here about the meditation. So please. Is everyone doing okay, ready ready to go or how are you doing? Mm.
1: Yeah. Yes, I would like to thank both of you for putting something which is quite complex and be quite esoteric at some point into day to day language so we could understand it and really grasp it in a way, although grasping <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you.
1: Mm. Um, I'm also very grateful um, uh, for for both uh, what you've offered the Dharma and also showing us that um, a man and a woman a married couple can sit up there and have some kind of harmony with each other because <laughs> <laughs> I think I think very important for us because we we need hope in terms of um, men and women being able to um, have harmony. Um, just kind of knowing my own patterns I ask, I've asked others before. For me, the challenge is now going back into my mind and um, maintaining that inspiration, sustaining it in some way. And uh, I just wonder if you have any advice.
0: Well, I, I um, one thing that I'm very aware of here in the States is how many resources there are for practitioners and how um, you know we have you know one has to sort of find them that the the ones that suit one self the best but there is a lot on offer and and increasingly with it being also there being an online kind of presence It's really helpful if people are more geographically isolated or without sanghas. I mean, usually the thing that's recommended is to find a practice sangha that is resonant with kind. of... I mean, no sanghas perfect. You know, it's you know they they're supportive, but they they often also you know a place of practice. because it's you know people get together but it's hard to do it on our own that's that's what i'm saying it's hard to just do do this in isolation we do need to know what we need is actually a very important part of the process and, and to recognize that we need support or uh, fellow others what's called kalyanamita friends that are walking the way um, and you just finding those finding, you know, a sangha, a place, and if, even if there's not the geography for it, um, there are ways of accessing um, uh, uh, support, teachings, you know, online, coming on retreats, keeping a, something of what works for each of us in a daily life. You know, exploring how to integrate some of these principles, whether it's a sitting practice or walking practice, or using something in the day as a practice as a place where you heighten the sense of this is a place that I'm going to just really take time to settle into what's present here, and and gather in again. You know, for for many, just having a regular sitting practice is helpful. For others, their lives um, don't. It's harder to do in a regular way, you know, even if it's things like, you know, um, taking, walking, if one's walking from A to B, but finding things that work, that support, and then just more subtly, inwardly, just the the moment-to-moment cultivation of this mindfulness, presence to how it is, being more connected with bodily experience. Um, you know, because any moment, any situation, we can always say, how is it now? You know, there's tension, tightness, how can I breathe with how it is? Keeping that very, very simple so it's, it, it, it's doable. And then also setting, if we do set up something to do in our everyday life, making it so that we can actually succeed at it. So if we go, often people go home from a retreat and say, "Okay, I'm going to get up at 5, I'm going to do half an hour bowing, I'm going to sit for an hour, I'm going to listen, I'm going to do the chanting, I'll download all that chanting from Dhamma Seed, and then in the evening I'll listen to a Dhamma talk and I'll do it. You know, like it lasts a day, if you're lucky, or, you know, and then you just feel a crashing sense of failure. But if you go home and say, well, I'll sit 10 minutes mindfully over a cup of tea in the morning and take it from there then you, you begin to move from small places of success and it encourages it develops and then you know and then you might say well you know I'll do a 15 minute or a 20 minute or depending on but whatever one you know does it's important to feel that, that, that it's something that's nourishing supporting sustaining um, you know and, and as I said if one can connect with some kind of Kalyanamita uh, support base is really, really helpful. Teachings. Yeah, yeah. Julia.
2: Yeah. Um, I very much can relate to what this woman just said. And I first of all want to thank you both and thank everybody, uh, the Sangha as well, this experience. and. wanted to share that I'm the kind of person that can um, flip from one thing to one thing. Uh, what about this book, or what about this tape, or what about this talk, or this teacher? And I'm, I can just flip, and um, Kitty Sorrow, you said, uh, a couple nights ago you said, If we can understand that our one breath, um, and we can understand everything. And in the last few days, I've been so in touch with how much a consumer of These are just really mm. tears of complete and utter openness Mm. to that, Um, compassionately not, uh, no. I would be lying if I didn't say it was painfully, but um, an honesty that just feels so um, like a breakthrough. Mm. Um, you know, I, I want to grasp onto you, <laughs> I want to, you know, I, I um, already hope that I could be here in March just to continue to be open and to learn, because it's been a profound teaching for me, and I just wanted to thank you all.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you.
2: Mm. And I will be coming back to my breath. not buying books <laughs> I <don't
0: know. laughs> step you know just I have I don't have to buy a thing I have a, um, a break mm. a I don't have to consume a thing I just have to breathe and pay attention to this and mm. it's a huge lesson to me mm. mm. so thank you thank you for that sharing as well yeah. mm. Yeah, I'm just digesting the last comment.
1: I remembered um, what I I wanted to say that that, that I didn't have access to. Um, I've done hundreds of retreats, and um, just along the lines of what you were talking about, uh, uh, another thing that was different about this retreat, in addition to what I've already said, is the vulnerability of Experience you know, such beautiful dharma teaching, with coupled with uh, human vulnerability, to, uh, I noticed that that combination has touched deeply in me uh, in ways that that I'll be finding out what it is as I leave here because I don't know what it is. I just know that um, that it's there's a deeper
0: Well, I think, you know, one of the um, principles of this path of practice is, you know, one doesn't want to suffer blindly. And unconsciously, one wants to illuminate the experience, but one doesn't want to use practice to defend oneself from the human experience of suffering, because I I feel it's it's the engagement with that in, uh, that it actually keeps the human um, aspect integrated into the you know the process of the deeper inquiry of, of deeper peace, deeper transcendence, whatever, however we articulate that, so it feels like um, yeah, that's, that's the real teacher in the end of the day, is, is that, and, and you know certainly <clears throat> when we realize that we don't have to be so frightened of the experience of suffering, and I think this might lead into, because I think perhaps we should lean a little more into that inquiry um I realize that you know f- taking the practice out into everyday life and working to consider how best to use one's time's energy to help alleviate suffering on a in a larger way it ha- it has some connection with a willingness to bear with suffering you know so or 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 difficulty, and, and in my early days of practice, I had a great intolerance to that. I just really wanted to use the practice to somehow, I guess, not feel anything, because feeling was quite painful. And I think it relates to what you were just saying about you know the, 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 the kind of the consuming that our societies are, are, are locked so deeply into, and yet somehow not getting the satiate, satiation from that. You know, they're a very deeply painful process. That's normal, but actually, it's it's painful. So, um, so I've lost my thought. You say something.
3: <laughs> I know what you're thinking. It's a very nice thought. (laughs) I I think that aversion for suffering is where you were. And uh, the master I quoted last night at the end of the talk, Master Hua, by the way, someone asked for what book it came from. It didn't come from a book, so I don't know it, his saying. I mean, we met him, and I think that particular one was on one of the bookmarks that his disciples passed out. But anyway, one of his favorite sayings was, I like suffering. <laughs> and what's interesting about that is, is, you know, if we can little but change our attitude, I, you know, I don't like suffering, but that causes a lot of problems. <laughs> And, you know, and if suffering is the first ennobling truth, at some point, little by... And I've had several, several people in the interviews have had very difficult circumstances, as we all do, but have had the insight, yes, but it was a, a blessing because it allowed me to learn this or break through that. or, So if little by little we can start to... And I'm a very anxious type. I'm a professional worrier.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) But if we can little by little learn to trust that things arise according to the law and that if it's difficult, it is an opportunity to learn and that suffering can give us a sense of where there's a snag. And so, you you know, I think you were talking about the engaging in the world and that if if one is really averse to suffering, it's hard to do it. And, and that, you know, it's, it's more and more a willingness to welcome. Or maybe if we can't welcome, just to, you know, when we catch ourselves averse and hating it, to, to remember and to open to it. Um, we went to, to South Africa, got invited, and we're invited to a center and, and, and we're practicing. But then, you know, if you do practice... Letting go and relaxing and, you, and letting go of such a sense of this is me and this is you. It's a thought that says, this is me and this is you. When the thought subsides, there's just, we're all, if you look at visually, we're all in the same field. We are actually all in the same field. So when one really starts to relax, then when we experience suffering, you could call it mine, but when we experience some suffering, you can call it yours, but it's really just, it's dukkha. And the heart responds. And and when we were practicing there and opening up, you know, one just couldn't help but start to notice. It's just, we're surrounded by suffering. People left, right, and center, dying and struggling with education. So, you know, it is possible to, kind of block it out I mean one of our friends defined apartheid as becoming an expert in denial you know we can do that but if one's practicing it's really hard to keep that going and so you know it was just not let's go we didn't go there trying to do a big bodhisattva deed, we just went and practiced, and then it's a human response to response when refugees end up on your land, or people are dying and they, they need a uh, doctor or medicine, or someone's looking for a school, and then you, you try to find them a school, and then you find where there's a school, and you notice the school doesn't have electricity, or it doesn't have any books, or if it doesn't have, then, then one's heart moves. So, I see this working in the world is just allowing our our practice to keep unfolding. Were well, you thinking something like
1: that? Well, it's beautiful. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Any want- uh.
0: Yeah. Questions. Yeah. Could you you uh, two more
1: sentences or three more sentences on the third low truth I'm not quite sure where it is a bit sort of different from the second second being.
0: I, I, uh, you know,
3: He's given me the opportunity to develop. (laughs) Okay, the four ennobling truths are essentially like the five fingers we can talk about, but they're part of one hand. So the four noble truths, there aren't absolute barriers between them. But, uh, but, but, but it, it, it's helpful to talk about it, but realizing that they, each one takes us home, takes us to the undivided mind. But you know, the second truth is, okay, we're opening to suffering, the first truth. The second truth, we start to get a sense of how it's created and perpetuated by this deluded, the word the Buddha uses, tanha, which is deluded thirsting, deluded craving, that's, that's trying to find self or satisfaction by, by claiming some feeling, some form, some perception, some thought, or by denying something, which is the same thing, the desire to have, the desire to get rid of. And so the, that truth, the exhortation, was to start to at least notice that, notice that streaming out and grabbing that, that scanning, and it's usually around what pleases us and thinking, oh yeah, that's where the good stuff is, that's where the happiness is, and we stream out and become it, grasp it or reject it. The exhortation was to start to notice that, and whereas usually we are that, and it's me, and it's obvious, we just do it. The exhortation of the second noble truth is to start relinquishing that, abandoning that, it's to, to start... to to begin to question it. So it's an exhortation rather than just to believe it, to start to let go. The third, and so the third noble truth is cessation means when that has happened. You're right, they're deeply related. But when there really is, in a moment, when the desire or the aversion in a moment is not me, it might still be there as a, as a, parrot in your head chattering or some kind of feeling tone but when it's when there's that transition of moving from when it's me to it just becomes a formation we're starting to get perspective and in a moment when there's the the cessation of that identification then there's a tasting the third noble truth the ending of suffering needs to be tasted in other words needs to be the word the Buddha uses realized you know so we're working on letting go. So the third noble truth is when there is a moment of real letting go. Now that's a moment. And, and you know, sometimes we have a moment, it's all clear, hallelujah, and we put the flag up. We got our little flag up on our seat. Yeah, I broke through. Hell, I did hundreds of retreats, but I tell you the breakthrough, that was December 15th. It was about it was about ten fifteen at night. It was, it was, it was awesome. It was incredible. And it was a true moment, but already we're grabbing it. And Ajahn Sajito says, it's like there's this huge wall, huge wall, but we have a little hole in the wall, and we've we've seen through the hole in the wall this incredible vista. Man, the view from here, incredible. Don't worry, you guys. You'll have your time. And, you know, there's a hole in the wall, but there's still this big wall. You know, we have huge obstructions. (laughs) So the third truth is realized, but the fourth truth is, you know, okay, your, your little realization is something, but then it's got to be developed, keep going, and then that Master Wa's, I like suffering, or Ajahn Chah's version, if you came to him with suffering, he would say, good. Oh, good. Because that's a, a motivation to practice. So, so does that make some sense of the movement between second, third, and fourth? Okay.
0: Yep, there, was a... there was a story that one of his disciples um, told that uh, when, when uh, he went to plug in a, an electrical appliance and there wasn't a good connection and his hand went like that and Ajahn Chah said, who taught you to let go so quickly?
1: <laughs>
0: Another way he would put it, he's, one, he was walking with some of his disciples and um, they passed some boulders a- in the road and he said, Are those heavy? And they, and they said, Yeah, they're really, really heavy. And he said, Well, they're not if you don't pick them up. <laughs> So you know, like the art of meditation is really just keep emptying out the boulders, you know we pick up, we pick up, we pick up and and having the feeling that I think a sort of retreat gives us you know some sense, a little bit maybe of of moments when we're not holding on to everything, you know and that's a little bit of an induction to the third truth, another way that um that was sometimes taught in the monastery to get a sense for it. It's a bit like contemplating um, sky or space. You know, when you come into the room, you you you're focusing on all the people, and or when you look at, you know, close your eyes, all the worries and, and things that are going on, sensations. But we don't notice the background, don't notice the space in the room, or you don't notice the awareness within which it's all happening. So those are other ways to contemplate it. Get a sense a little bit more of the Third Noble Truth. Or the silence, the sounds. There's the silence. Well, it's not real. Like what the sounds, when they end. The listening. Yeah, so those are ways as well. Sorry, Noah. I was
2: wondering if you could talk a bit about dharma in relationships, particularly in, in intimate relationships, and you know, and also in terms of the role of desire within the dharma and within that type of relationship.
0: Um, yeah, it's well, it's the desire is in a way, it's desire, the energy of desire, sexuality, and so on, isn't a problem. It's more how it's you know it's a, an energy that can actually be channeled and usually the the way of being held within a relationship where there's you know that one is working consciously with that energy with with you know care with with loving kindness compassion with each other or with the partner um, then there's there's it's a field for contemplation. It's a field for reflection. What it, what exactly? Like any any energy, any experience. What exactly? What's happening? What's what's the experience? What's the result? What's you know what's happening in the process, um, where the 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 containing of sexuality, desire um, is in terms of the precepts that we were reflecting on this morning is to recognize that these are powerful energies. And so working within committed relationship gives a, gives a, a, a context to work within. Um, and that, you know, in the Buddhist path, that was considered an allowable and supported paradigm within which to work, within lay life. Um, in monastic life ones, working with sexuality through the contemplation of celibacy. It doesn't mean that it's a non-sexual life. It just means it's a very it's a, it's a sort of life with everything under a microscope, including sexual energy, um, with restraint on its expression. And, you know, with within, you know, everyone has a different relationship to sexuality, desire, nature, different kinds of conditionings, different woundings or different... Expectations, or different joys, or different impulses. So all of that is something that can be used within, within the you know contemplative, con- contemplative framework. Um, in terms of, an intimacy isn't just about sexuality. It's also about you know how how to in relationship. Um, committed relationship, married relationship, or in relationship, child, or something, you know relationship that we're we're committed to, or as a karmic relationship that we've we, we've gone into, you know, at a bit of a deeper level, made more of a commitment to each other. Then it's also about how to help hold the space for each other and for oneself, so that. The relationships itself becomes a vehicle of practice and within that there'll be moments of love and hate and frustration and happiness and companionship and resist. you know so i think that's all of that is if there's a, an openness to work with it we'll start to meet some very very deep patterns you know psychological emotional patterns um that will that will come up in intimacy you know it's intimacy is the place where our deepest patternings are held Um, And so it can be a very fertile ground for reflection. um, And then also within relationship, it's a relationship, but ultimately it's also each person is working through their own karma. So also how to be in relationship that's also enabling a certain amount of freedom for each other to be and to grow in ways. You know, that's a a dynamic where the tendency to try and control um, or to to overly, you know, like just to, to just keep listening. It's a bit of a dance, wouldn't you say, my love? <laughs> 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 um, it's, you know, it's, you know, as I was saying a bit early in the closing remarks, that the principle of practice, learning, you know, to understand. So we use the framework of the four truths as a very good template, you know, where is the Where's suffering now? You know what? What are we? What's being grasped? Because you know suffering arises from grasping or aversion. So what's what's happening? How to let go? You know. And then, as you know, letting go isn't a blank. You're not letting go into annihilation or blankness. You're letting go into the ground of wisdom. You're letting go into the ground where aliveness, where understanding can emerge. So to let go and then just sense what's the best way forward. You know, what, what's the right response? So, you know, that's, in meditation, we're establishing primary relationship with this being. And when we get a sense of how to work with the flow of our own consciousness, then it becomes a bit more fluid in terms of our other relationships. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a child, I think as I, you know, just more generally, when Ajahn said, when he went from the forest, the lone yogi life, into community, is was the place where he grew the most wisdom, you know, he didn't say that lightly, it's because human relationships the ground, you know, for a lot of our challenges and desires, frustrations, hurts, um, hopes, and, you know, and companionship. um,
3: Well, sickness was the main, main contemplation of my life, maybe for 10 years. But for three years, I was so sick that I really laid down almost all the time. It was so unusual to ever have a moment of no pain. I mean, I just remember, you know, when those moments would come, I think, wow. You know, uh, but I, um, it was really helpful that I was in a community that saw sickness as a heavenly messenger. So I had permission to be sick. That was, like once, my monastic teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, you see, they remembered me. When I went to Thailand, I was still a wrestler. I I could walk on my hands for 50 yards, 100 yards. I taught Ajahn Sumedho in the early, early morning, 2.30, yoga. Then I taught the rest of the community before dawn, yoga. I was doing pranayama. I had such a big chest from my muscles that the, the Thai lay women would say, they used to think I was a girl, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but
3: but so, so then I had so much energy. So then when I got really sick, a lot of my monastic friends, including my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, just kept wanting me to get well, you know, because they remembered how I used to be. And I mean, I looked bad after typhoid and stuff. So one day he, he came up to, I used to live in the attic in, in the Chithurst Monastery. Just They used to joke, the monk dying in the attic.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and Ajahn Smedo came up one day and um, held my hand and just asked uh, for forgiveness. He said, look, I'm sorry, Cutie. sir. I've been putting all this pressure on you, wanting you to get well all the time. And he said, I give you permission to die. <laughs> and the relief the tears of relief. He said, no, I don't want you to die. But you have permission if that's what's happened. And so I must admit, it really helps to think of this, that this is a heavenly messenger. There's so much that can be learned from it. And there's such a conditioning that I'm useless, I need to do more. You know, if we can give ourselves permission to, this was one of the main signs that, that led the Buddha to embark on the spiritual path because this reminds us of the, that these forms we take to be mine are subject to de- decay. So it's really helpful to have encouragement and to encourage ourselves to, to learn from it. And then, you know, working with pain, um, mindfulness of the body is just, is the best medicine. For me, I mean, I've been through so many therapies, this and that, and, and they've been wonderful too. But the one thing you can always do that's always available and, is, and is, the, is a hugely healing thing is to receive this ailing body-mind into a heart of just willing to, like a mother holding a baby, just to hold it. So I loved lying down. That was my main meditation posture. And with each out-breath, I would surrender to the bed, to the floor, to the ground, and then feel yourself supported, getting that sense of that effortless support, and yet just making enough effort to stay into the listening. Just listen. Let the effort just receive the sensations of the body. And then the the pains and this and that, looking at that second arrow, you know, the way we don't want it and try to improve it. Breathe through those and keep allowing the pain to not be hated. Pain is a natural function that's asking for attention. So we don't need to resent it. it. It guides our awareness. So we can go in and breathe into the pain if it gets too intense or not. We don't want to get obsessed with it. Keep letting the awareness become more agile to check out the hands and the feet, the whole body. So, you know, I just worked a lot with, with meditation and, and dying. It was my, I practiced dying. You know, for me, I just kept, the more I let go and surrendered to it, for for me, strangely, that allowed enough opening so that in my case, it seemed to give a little more energy for healing. But it was just whether it was meant to be or not. You know, I didn't do so much driving kind of thing. I was deeply relaxing and trusting that the nature of awareness is it tends to put things in balance. I did a lot of devotional practice during that time. That's when I started the Kuan Yin practice, because the great Chinese master I had read said, oh, yeah, well, Kuan Yin helps you with illnesses. And I thought, oh, really? So I asked, I didn't submit on my teacher. I thought I said, you know, do you mind if I communicate with this Chinese master about? And he, uh, you know, gave me his blessing for that. And so at first, you know, I started that practice with a desire. But as I got more deeply into it, the nature of the Quan Yin practice is more and more deeply bowing into listening and trusting that that has within it a response, that that is not just a nothing thing to do, to deeply and compassionately listening is a very healing thing that can allow whatever needs to happen to happen, whatever that happens to be. Um, that's a bit of work.
0: For a few moments, and we'll just, um, take five minutes after that to finish formally together. And um, that's the end, <laughs> for now, <laughs> of the retreat anyhow.
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.